Okay, um, Mark chapter 9. Please turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at the next section now. But before we get to that, I need to just take you back a few years. Before I did this job, which I've been doing in about a month's time, I've been doing this for 20 years, which is a war. I know what you're thinking. You should be better at it by now. But before I did that, I was a primary school teacher. And my first class, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. yeah before I, when I was young, no, that's what I looked like. Now, this is what I look like. My first class were year one, which are five and six-year-olds. I start at five, they go to six. And I, I started my first job, university. I started teaching, and I had this wonderful class. They're, my, they're the ones I can remember. I can probably, with a push, maybe get all 30 names even now for those years ago, because they were my first class, they were special, and I remember going in on the, on, 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 into start, and I was going over the summer holidays, so ready to start in the September, and the school wasn't in the nicest area of town, it was a bit of a, kind of a rough area, had a lot of social problems, and the like, you know, fights were regular in our school between the parents, you know, it was just, it was one of those places, and so I went in, and I remember teaching um, my first class, and it was a boy-heavy class, so we had 30 kids, and there were more boys than girls. I think we're about 18, 12 on the split. And so there were a lot more boys, and they were wild and active boys. And um, it would be regular lunchtime staff room where I'd get a knock on the door, and the head would come around the door, and it'd be uh, Mrs. Gibson, our head dinner lady. She'd Stuart, I need to talk to you about your boys, she'd say. And you're like, and I go out, and there'd be three or four of them lined up like they're waiting execution, you know, like this outside, because they'd done something. So that was my first class. And as I was getting ready for it, the head of Key Stage came and talked to me. Her name was Tessa. She was a lovely lady. been teaching decades. She said, Stuart, the most important thing you're going to do this year is you need to lay a foundation in their reading and their writing. They're starting formal schooling. It's up to you to lay the correct foundation. Blending um, words, helping them read, letter formation, all those things. Because when you do that, what they build on as they go up to year six will be important. So you've got to lay the correct foundation. I'm like, all right. Next thing, Julian, the head of maths comes in. He says, Stuart... You've got them here. It's so important that you lay the correct foundation for maths. They've got to learn their bonds to 10. They need to know their 2, 5, and 10 times table. And I'm like, literally, because if you don't, as they go up to 6, we're going to have problems with their maths and their results and their stats and like that. And I'm sitting there, all right. Next thing, the head comes in and talks to me. And he says, Stuart, the most important thing you do this year, forget everything else I said, you need to get those boys under control. You need to lay a foundation of discipline in their lives because if you don't get them under control now when they're five, when they hit ten, they're going to be wild. And so that was my job in my first year of teaching, to lay the foundations for these children's lives as they went up through the school. And what we're looking at today as we get into this next section of Mark's Gospel is Jesus is laying the foundation for these disciples on what it means to follow him as they move forward, and ultimately that will be beyond. He knows he's going to die. He knows what's going to happen afterwards, and so that's what he's doing. So we've reached the middle section of Mark's gospel. We've had the, the ministry in Galilee. We're in the middle bit on the way as he's heading towards Jerusalem. We've had Peter answer the most important question in the world, which is, who do you say I am? Peter confesses, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Brilliant, but then immediately followed by misunderstanding. He gets that wrong. We then see the incredible revelation of Jesus and in his glory in the transfiguration. 
which is again followed by unbelief and uh, mistakes from the disciples. I believe, help my unbelief, said the man. Oh, they couldn't cast a demon out of his son. And what we're going to do now is move on to the next section of Mark. So the text will appear on the slides. Matt is out, someone with a roving mic. Here we go. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone won't be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltness, then how will you make it salty again? Have you sought in yourself and at peace with one another? Red. All right. We have what this passage begins with Jesus' second prediction of his suffering. We've had one in chapter 8. We've got one now in chapter 9. We're going to have one more in chapter 10 as we go through it. And then it follows by several lessons of what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. So we're going to look at the foundation of following Jesus. We're going to then look at humility and service and holiness and sacrifice. Big idea for today is following Jesus means giving our whole lives to him in humility and service, holiness and sacrifice. Following Jesus means giving our whole lives to him in humility and service, holiness and sacrifice. First one, the foundation of following Jesus. Right. Passing through Galilee, he spent all his time in Galilee, he's now passing through it, Mark is giving us hints, he's heading somewhere, he's heading towards Jerusalem, it's the last mention of Galilee in the Gospel of Mark until we get right to the end when he um, tells them to go back there, but Galilee he's done with, he's heading towards Jerusalem where he's going to face the end um, of his mission here on earth. Um, He's seeking anonymity, 
because he wants to focus on his disciples. He wants to teach them. He wants to get the foundations right with them so that when the ministry carries on after him, they know what they're doing. He's also trying to stay out of the way because if they've confessed him to the Messiah and he doesn't want to get, give them the wrong idea. We've seen there's a, a prone to triumphalism and all that that means. And Jesus is, I'm not that kind of Messiah. I'm not the one you're thinking. I'm different. I do it differently. I live differently. It's going to be outworked differently. And so he makes this second prediction of his death and it has three parts. It says the Son of Man is going to suffer, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise again. Suffering, death, resurrection. And it's in that order. Jesus uses again his title, the Son of Man, which we've seen in context. That's a reference to his suffering and his humanity. So even as he uses it, he's pointing again to what happens. He says, this time we'll be uh, handed over into the hands of men. Last time it was particularly focused on the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Here it's a wider thing, actually. His death is going to be the responsibility of all people. All people are going to be responsible for that. He is going to die, but then that will be followed by his resurrection. And this is the starting point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the starting point for us as Christians that Jesus came as a man to earth, as fully God, fully man. But he suffered, he died, and then he rose again. And this, within that has the key truths of the Christian faith, that who he, Jesus was, what he says he was, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, but then he suffered and died on a cross and rose bodily from death. And this was all, this was one of some surprises, all part of the divine plan, even in Jesus' language. He said that the Son of Man will be delivered the sense behind that is God's doing this, God's in control, Jesus is in control of everything that's happened. And Jesus is laying again this foundation for his guys, you have to understand what's coming. For you to follow me, you have to know that I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'll rise again. But my resurrection is preceded by my suffering and my death. And that is vital to what for you, for what comes to follow and how you follow me. But it says the disciples, once again, they didn't grasp it. And he's trying to talk to them. He's trying to lay that foundation. They didn't get it. We've seen that time and time again already in the Gospel of Mark, that they're teaching them plainly, but they're still struggling to see it. And so then he uses some object lessons to teach them more. And it says they came in the second part. He's following Jesus means humility and service. So they came to Capernaum. He went into a house. Houses in Mark's Gospel are places of revelation. Places of teaching, places of understanding. Jesus has done this with the parables and explaining some of his teaching about the Pharisees. And here he goes, he gets them together and he asks them the question. When Jesus asks the question, he's not after information because he knows. He's trying to make a point. So he says to them, what were you discussing? <laughs> and it says they were silent because they knew. And we know, we've read the text, what they were discussing. They were discussing who would be the greatest and they have completely, Jesus has just said, I am going to suffer and die. And they're arguing in the corner saying, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the head of this great messianic triumph that Jesus leads where we kill the Romans and we kick them out? Who's going to be right there with him? I am. I'm going to be the greatest, probably Peter said. And John's like, oh, no, 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 no. I think I should be the greatest. And Jesus is saying they've completely missed it. And he is pointing it out to them. And Jesus is speaking about suffering and rejection and death and his followers are talking about ambition, status and privilege. Jesus is about talking about surrendering his life and they're talking about fulfilling theirs. Jesus counts the cost of discipleship. They're counting the privileges. What am I going to get out of this? They don't regard, don't grasp 
The rewards of discipleship come as a consequence of suffering and death. They're not getting it. Following Jesus means humility and service that is born out of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. And so they're, they're just making this discussion. It says they were, they were shamed to silence, which is the same language used at the Pharisees while Jesus confronts them and they realize they've got nowhere to go. It says, this, it says they were silent before him because Jesus has got them. Jesus has skewered them. And they are silent before him and they are there thinking about prominence and Jesus is thinking about serving and suffering. And so what does he do? He sits them down. He assumes the position of a teacher and he calls them to him and he makes a pronouncement of his own. And he's saying the idea of serving and servanthood is central to Christianity. And Jesus is going to model it himself. He has been modeling it. He will continue to model it. He's saying, actually, the, world, the world's idea of greatness is money and influence and power and likes and followers. That's what the world says. And actually, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you are to be a servant. And the word there was just a simple word for one who waits on tables. And that doesn't literally mean you have to be a waiter or a waitress to be great in God's kingdom. It means it's the posture you must take. You are the posture of a servant. You are there to serve others and all that they are doing. He says you are to be a servant of all. That's all of them. And then he says, he goes on and he said he brings in a child. He brings in a child. Now the child um, at the time was an image for the least because in that season, um, the, the, there would be high infant mortality, and kids only really had value when they could contribute. And so when they're really small, they have no contribution, therefore they have no value. And so when Jesus takes a child and says, actually, you've got to serve one like this, he's saying, you serve the least, you serve the most vulnerable, you serve the outsiders, you serve the ones that others would look down on and wouldn't value. And that is what we are to do as followers of Jesus. That's what yours do. It says you are to be servants of all. You are to look for the insignificant ones and you are to serve them. That is how you are great in God's kingdom. That is how you're great in God's kingdom. And you think, they got the message now. Surely they've got it. Jesus explained his suffering. He says you are to serve and he's modeling it. And then immediately we get John jump in. Interesting, it's not Peter this time, which means shows their ignorance and misunderstanding was kind of universal. It wasn't just limited to one of them. John then jumps in and says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. It's like, John, and then he says, he says and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John is now counting himself with the Messiah, us. We're the us. It's not, we're not following you, Jesus. He's saying we're following us. So when Jesus is talking about serving and humility, John is saying he's not with us. We've got to stop him. He's not part of the inner crew. He's not part of the core. He's not part of the ones who know it. And the irony is, the great irony, remember what happened in the previous section that we did last week? What could disciples not do? Cast out a demon. So there's a guy here casting out a demon in Jesus' name, and they're trying to stop him, and they're trying to stop him doing something they can't do. Why? John, you've missed it. You've missed it. He's Jesus saying, we serve, we are humble, and John is now trying to exert his influence over this other individual who is unnamed, who is doing the stuff of the kingdom that John found himself unable to do in the previous section along with the other disciples because they couldn't cast a demon out because it came out with prayer, Jesus said. And he's trying to stop him. And so he has completely missed it. 
And Jesus responds to them and saying, actually, don't stop him. He is serving in my name. He has his own call, his own commission. He is speaking well of me, and he is proclaiming my name and demonstrating my kingdom there. You don't get to stop them. You don't get to cry foul on what he's doing. Because he says, for one who is not against us is for us. So he's on the same team. And Jesus is saying, in, in your humility, actually, there'll be others God's calls to other situations and doing other things that he hasn't told you about. And that's okay. You don't get to then enforce what you think on them. They're doing the works of the kingdom. He's doing it. And he says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a, a, sorry, gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will no, by no means miss his reward. What he's talking about there is belonging to Christ are other believers. We've seen this in Peter's confession of the Christ, which is wider because Jesus has wider followers. And he's saying, if you serve one another with the simple act, a cup of water is the most simple way of serving someone, just giving them a drink. It requires very little but can do a lot. He says, if you just serve someone because they belong to Christ, there is blessing in that. There is reward in that. You don't stop them doing the service because it doesn't fit in with what you're doing. John's saying, he's not one of our crew. We've got to stop him. Jesus says, no, actually, we're to serve. We're to give. And so we are to bring humility and service to following Jesus. And the third thing, then, he says, is following Jesus requires holiness and sacrifice holiness and sacrifice and this section is full of warnings and it's quite uncomfortable to read and so the first warning Jesus gives is against hindering a follower of his hindering a follower is it follows on the same thought from the previous verse about being good to other followers but he's actually saying now it's the reverse of that it's actually don't be bad and Jesus refers to his followers as little ones it's not children this time, it's actually referring to those who believe and follow him. And he says, if you cause one of them to sin, it would be better if a millstone was hung down your neck, which were huge stones they used to grind um, the grain into flour. And if that was put around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, that's a horrific way of dying. And it's doubly bad for Jews because they weren't happy with the sea. They didn't like the sea. The sea represented uncertainty and chaos and things outside kind of... Um, outside kind of God's kingdom. And so being thrown into the sea was extra bad. So this is a really severe warning Jesus is saying to um, his followers. And actually, we are not to, by our actions, cause other people to stumble, cause other people to come into sin. Holiness in our life actually is an outward thing as well. It affects others on how we, so how, if we hinder another follower of Jesus by our actions, we are responsible and guilty before God. And he says the consequences of that are great. So we are, there is a warning against hindering a follower of Jesus, which is just what the disciples were doing by trying to stop that man, cast out the demon, because he was trying to set somebody free. And they were trying to stop him. He says, you don't get to hinder them. But then he goes on to say, you don't get to hinder yourself either. He says, actually... You, there's this hyperbole of hacking off body parts. Now, just to be clear, he's not being literal. He's not being literal there. He is using graphic language to make a point. And the point is this. Obedience to God is more important than those things that seem indispensable. 
Obedience to God is more important than the things in life that seem indispensable. And there it's your hand, your foot, and your eyes, which when you put them together, they basically become inclusive metaphors of what we see, what we do, and where we go. And Jesus is saying, if, you, if there's something you look at, something you do, or a place you go, which is separating you from God because it's sinful, stop it. Stop it now. Not just stop it, cut it out. Be utterly ruthless with it on a par with taking a machete and cutting off your own hand. Which is, should, it should carry a force and a weight of his words. He's saying sin is serious. Sin is serious. And he uses, people don't like this, but he uses the word hell in this. And he describes it as the fire that never goes out. The reference there is to Gehenna which was a place, an actual physical place outside the city of Jerusalem, which was um, known in the Old Testament for human sacrifices, so a place of great evil, a great horror, but then it was turned into a rubbish dump so that, that practice couldn't continue. So basically all the refuge was put there. They didn't have recycling as we have today, so it all went there, and then it was kind of burned, and so it was a place that was smoldering, it was a place that smelled. It was disgusting. It would have had rotting carcasses there, which is where we get the worms and the maggotry imagery. So that's what it's like. And that's a picture of the wrath of God that comes on sin, that is God's righteous judgment on evil. Because God is holy, and as we are, as his people, are called to be holy. We saw this when we studied the book of Leviticus. And God, Jesus is saying to them, flee from sin. Get it out of your life because it will damage you and it will also damage those around us. And the consequences for you, if you hinder yourself or if you hinder others, is huge. He quotes um, the Old Testament, Isaiah 66, verse 24, which just outlines those consequences of rebellion against God. For the where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, conscious eternal torment and suffering at the hands of a holy God for those who do not deal with their sin and get right with him. And we've been asking ourselves this question as a church since uh, September last year about, does this help me have a relationship with Jesus? And we've been asking us to grow up, get our lives in order, sort ourselves out, and there are things in our lives which do not help us. And Jesus' response to them is, deal with them radically, graphically, forcefully, so that they are out the way. And then the final thing he talks about right at the end is we are called to holiness, but we are also called to sacrifice. And the final two verses there uses two images. One is salt, one is fire. Both which played an indispensable role in the, in the sacrifices that took place at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. The first one we looked at when we went through Leviticus was the burnt offering. And the nature of that offering was the worshipper brought the offering, the animal, whatever it was, depending on their wealth. And it was what? It was burnt and utterly consumed. And so the image is there. When the burnt offering is consumed by fire, everything is consumed. And so for a believer, a follower of Jesus, it is one of sacrifice where your entire life is consumed by God. There's no little bit you get to keep for yourself and say, that's mine. No, Jesus is Lord of all of it. Salt was also used in the sacrifice. We saw that again in Leviticus. It was, um, the salt was often put on the sacrifices as they were burned. And what Jesus is saying here is that he lays claim totally to the life of his followers. He 
completely has them. And for us as believers, we are the ones who to follow in that. We are to live this life as living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans. We are to live this life being consumed by him as we follow him with soul and with fire. And sometimes that means trials and tribulations. But all of those things help us grow as believers. God uses them to shape us. And so as believers, we are to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, we are to nurture the faith of other believers. We are to make sure our own faith is growing and we are dealing with sins. We are putting him at top in our lives and not letting anything else get in the way. And we are to be living sacrifices for him, holy and righteous before him. So we've gone through the passage. Let's land this with a couple of bits of application. I want to ask you two questions uh, today. First question is, are you standing on the foundation of Jesus? Are you standing on the foundation of Jesus on his life, death, and resurrection, and all that that means? If you're not a believer here, you're, obviously, you're building your life on something. Something has, is the core, the center, the foundation on which you, which you stand. It could be your career, it could be your health, it could be money, it could be family, it could be a political or social cause. But I want to just tell you today, they are all shifting sands and they will not last. There is nothing in your life that is so stable that a single phone call, a single conversation cannot utterly destroy it. We're downsizing. It's malignant. Your services are no longer required. I'm leaving you. All those things will wreck your life, and whatever you've built it on will end in a moment. The only thing, the only foundation that lasts in life is Jesus Christ, that he came to earth, that he was who he said he was, God the Son. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in our place for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and rules and reigns victorious and one day will come again to judge all mankind. And the only way to salvation is through him. If you're a believer here, you've made a decision to follow Jesus. It was wonderful hearing from Denise, that one again. She saw him. It reminded me of the transfiguration. I'm all in. I am following him. And the question is, are you living in the good of that? Are you standing on that foundation that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life? You were once dead and you are now alive. You were a sinner, but now you've been made righteous and holy. Is that something that shapes your life? As you read God's word, are you taking that and making it your foundation in life? That he is good no matter what the circumstances. What is your foundation and what are you building on? Second question, are you heeding the warnings of Jesus? Are you heeding the warnings of Jesus? How we live our life matters. How we live it now, and Jesus is interested in all of it. Sin is real, sin is powerful, and sin has consequences. Sin is the inward corruption we have in our life, which gives us a bent towards not following Jesus It can come out in thought, word, and action. It can be the things we do and say. It can be the things we don't do and say that we should have done. All those things have consequences. If you're not a believer here, you stand under the holy, righteous judgment of God, and you need to repent of your sin, which means turn around, go the other way, put your faith and trust in Jesus. And if that's you, I'd love to chat with you at the end. I'd like to talk to you about what that means, pray with you. If you are a believer here, 
You've done that. But the question is, are you still doing that? Are you living the light in light of that? What are the things in your life that you need to get right? What are the things in your life that are hindering you and by extension hindering others around you? Because sin in our life, it doesn't just affect us. It has an outward effect on others around us. And we are to live a way that doesn't cause others to stumble and sin. In this part of the country, in this town where we are, one of our tendencies is we like to make good things God things. We take the gifts of God and then we start worshipping them. And these can be things like money. We want more of it. We need to accumulate more. Better salary, better job. We want our career. The career is the most important thing. And we will sacrifice everything for our career, our hobbies. That's good for our well-being. But then they suddenly become things that we devote time and energy and money to and forsake the meeting of God's people and the worship of God for them. Our health is suddenly the most important thing. We want to look after ourselves. And therefore, if we're not healthy, suddenly God's not good because we've made that our idol. That's the thing that we look to, and that's our judge on everything. Our homes, our children and their education, that's the most important. That's what we're going to sacrifice for. All of those things are good things. They're just not ultimate. These can also be internal attitudes we have, unforgiveness, Bitterness, self-reliance, arrogance, pride, judging others. We find ourselves wrestling with these all the time. And when we do, we need to repent of our sin. We need to cut it out. We need to come to God. We need to seek forgiveness. But he has earned for us on the cross. And we need to say, God, we're sorry. We turn away. And we need to put him back in his place. And as we do that... As we make him the foundation, then out of that position, we live lives of service and humility and holiness and sacrifice where we serve and care for those around us. Not trying to earn God's approval because we've already got it. We've already received it in Christ, but we manifest that out. But I'd love us as we finish now to do a little bit of business. Do a little bit of business with Jesus because he is the one who fulfilled it perfectly. He was the one who came and served. He didn't come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He was the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He was the one who was righteous and holy, yet became sin so that we didn't have to. What a wonderful Savior. And we are going to come before him now, and we're going to do some business with him. So do you want to stand up? Maybe the band, you want to come get ready, because we're going to sing in a moment. But I want to just leave you in a response. I want to lead you in a response And I want you to do some business with the Lord. And I want you to feel the weight of his words towards you. These aren't optional extras of the Christian life. These are the core and the foundation of all that Jesus has for us. So maybe you want to close your eyes. Hold your hands up. Hold them out. Whatever works for you so you know you're engaging with God. First question is, what are you standing on? What is your foundation? And not just an intellectual question. You know, the answer in church is always Jesus in some way. But actually, what does it mean for you? Are you standing on his foundation? Are you standing on his truth? When you look at all the things that are going around in life, are you standing on the fact that he is Savior, he is Lord, he is over all things, he is the one holding you, he is the one who saved you, drawn you to himself, chosen you, adopted you, declared you not guilty, uh, is gradually shaping you into the image of his son who one day we will see in glory and be utterly transformed. Is that the foundation of your life? If you know it's not and you've been looking at other things, just take a moment now. Repent before him. 
Say, Jesus, forgive me for that because I put other things there. You're not the foundation. I've been running after career and money and other things. If you know there are specific things in your life that you need to cut out, things you're looking at, things you're doing, places you're going, bring them to God now and make a decision now to do it. Name them specifically before God and say, this is sinful, I want to stop. And I want to come to you. I want to seek forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are God. We thank you that you came to make a way for us that we may come to know you. We thank you that you are the firm foundation on which we stand. Lord God, we thank that everything else is built on that. God, we pray that you would grow us, shape us as a church, as individuals. Lord, that we would be men and women who humbly serve others, who pursue holiness and sacrifice for your kingdom and for your goodness. Lord God, we love you. God's people said...